Well, good evening, guys. How are we doing? So, like, this side of the room, like, 10 of you are good. This side of the room is stop breathing. You in the back are nowhere to be found. Let's try it one more time. How are you guys doing tonight? There it is. If we haven't had the chance to meet before, my name's Rory. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life. I'm so honored to be with you guys tonight. Are you guys cool if we just sort of jump right into what we're doing? Sound good? If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Colossians. We are going to be in Colossians chapter 1. If you have a Bible, it is going to be like towards the back. If you're looking for it, we're going to be at the end of chapter one, and I'll just let you guys know what I'm talking about tonight, what I'm, the idea I'm sort of presenting to you is simply this about Jesus, that Jesus is the hope of glory. Let me hear you say hope of glory, hope of glory. Jesus is the hope of glory. Now, I don't know what sort of comes to mind when you hear a phrase like that, Jesus is the hope of glory to maybe define some terms for us. When we think about hope, what we're thinking about is the potential that somewhere in the not so distant future, but also somewhere off in the far distant future that there is goodness waiting for us, right? You've ever had hope about an opportunity or hope about a situation in your life. That's what we're talking about when we say hope. When we say glory, what we're talking about is these spaces where the goodness of God sort of becomes clear to us. So to say that Jesus is the hope of glory is to say that Jesus is this wishfulness. There's this wishfulness that Jesus is somehow going to reveal to us God's goodness in our lives and God's goodness as it works throughout the world. Colossians chapter one, we're going to be at the very end starting in verse 24. Now what's challenging about this little section that Tim has given me to preach on tonight is that there's a lot happening in just a few short verses. So it's going to feel like we're sort of shifting ideas around here tonight. Just bear with me. We're going to land in somewhere that makes sense. I promise. Verse 24, Paul writes, he says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I find it so interesting. Paul starts this section by saying he rejoices in what he is suffering. And if you're a normal human, you think that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. I don't know what you think about when you think about suffering. For Paul, most people believe that when Paul is writing this letter, he's actually in prison in Rome. So he's thrown in a jail cell, he's on the floor, he's handcuffed, he's tied down, he is in a brutal spot. Somehow he's been allowed to have pen and paper to write letters to some of his closest friends and What we know about this time that Paul has been imprisoned, he's in the city of Rome, but he was actually arrested by Jewish leaders. So if you know much about who Paul is, Paul was a Jew himself. So Paul has been arrested by his very own people. He's been turned over to the Roman Empire and been said, you're going to throw him in jail. And so he's been thrown in jail. What we know about the way the court system worked back then, Paul could have gone to the highest official and asked for an appeal and said, hey, I don't think I've been thrown in here properly. What most historians sort of think is that Paul knew if he would have done that, it would have made his Jewish brothers and sisters look bad. So think about that. He has been thrown in jail by his closest friends, relatives, family members, people who are the same bloodline as him. I know some of you might want to throw your brother or sister in jail from time to time, but imagine If all of a sudden you end up in handcuffs because they have snitched on you and turned you in. That's what Paul is facing. So when we think about Paul's suffering, he says he has great joy in it. This is the kind of suffering that he's facing. I don't know what comes to mind when you think about suffering, but let me ask you, what is suffering like in your life? 
See, for some of you, that word suffering, you can start to think of some things really quick. You start to think of those moments where anxiety and depression have sort of welled up in your life. Stress is sort of hit and no one really knows about it. You're just kind of carrying it around in your body and you're, you're tense and you're worried and maybe that's what suffering feels like for you. Maybe suffering for you is when you're at home and you're just hanging out in your bedroom minding your own business, but you hear your mom and your dad arguing and you hear the word divorce get thrown out randomly. This is what you go home to every night. Your parents who on the outside present this really good thing, but at home there's conflict and fighting all the time. Maybe for you, the, the suffering takes place at school. Maybe it even takes place at church. When you come into this place, you feel completely alone. You feel isolated. You've, you've had people sort of poke fun at you, make fun of you for what you wear, or how you look. And so when you think about suffering, it's deeply personal to the life experience that you're having. And what I don't want to do tonight is take away from what you're feeling. But there is a differentiation that has to be made for the kind of suffering that Paul is experiencing, right? Paul's been thrown in jail because his brothers and sisters, his relatives, his people in his bloodline don't know that they believe this gospel of Jesus that Paul keeps talking about. Paul keeps traveling around telling people about this man named Jesus who was far more than a man who was killed on a cross and then three days later rose from the dead and sort of met Paul in this miraculous moment. He keeps telling people this story and they don't believe him. So Paul keeps getting thrown in prison left and right. For Paul, suffering looks like almost being stoned to death. For Paul, suffering looks like having people constantly coming after you because of the gospel. See, for Paul, suffering was almost always related to the way he was trying to share the gospel. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Rory, there may be suffering in my life. There may be really difficult things, but Rory, I don't know that I'm like suffering for the gospel. And I'm gonna be honest with you. You're probably not. Listen, you're probably not going to school and people find out you went to church on a Wednesday and they've got like a bag of rocks ready to throw at you. It's probably not happening. Most of you probably have friends who are also Christians, so it's not like when you go up to your friends and you say, hey, I was at youth group last night, I went to students at a New Life, they're not like ready to call the police on you. We're also sort of privileged. We live in a country in a space where you can believe what you believe and no one's gonna throw you in jail. So you maybe have never had those moments where you felt like you've been suffering for the gospel. But what I wonder is if some of you have. See, suffering for the gospel, the reason Paul ends up suffering for the gospel is because what he does is he defends it. He stands up for the truth of it when he's in public spaces. He talks about it when he has opportunities to. I wonder for some of you if there might be opportunities in your life, in your everyday life, to sort of take a stand for the gospel. Now, what I'm not asking you to do is stand on a street corner and yell at people about Jesus. That's weird. But for some of you, I wonder if you've been at school and you see someone else who gets picked on, who gets bullied, who gets made fun of, and no one stands up for them. Standing up for the gospel might look like you standing up and saying, hey, that's just not okay. And you know what might happen after that? People might be like, dude, you're weird. That's not your business. Leave it alone. For some of you, it might be other things. It might be in the conversations that you find yourself with your friends and you're having big conversations about life, right? You're talking about what does it mean to live a good life and what is 
ethics and what does it mean to behave well and act right. And you have this framework of Jesus in the background. And so when you speak up and say this, or you say, speak up and say, you believe this about this issue. And all of a sudden they're kind of going like, man, that's so like old fashioned, dude. That's so old school. You're so, <laughs> what a loser. You actually think that. You might find yourself, the people that you called friends or the people you had conversations with start to sort of deteriorate and get different. See, what Paul figured out was that when those moments happen, when you take a stand for the gospel, when you take a stand for the life of Jesus and you experience some sort of pushback or suffering, what Paul figured out was that those moments are actually not the worst thing that could happen to you. In fact, an easy way to say this is what Paul figured out is that the gospel actually gives great purpose to all of your suffering. The gospel gives great, great purpose to all of your suffering and not just the suffering when you're like standing up for something good, but the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus gives great purpose even to those moments when your life feels like it's falling apart. Because what the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has taught us is that not even death could hold Jesus down. It taught us that not even death could rob us of goodness and joy and peace and hope in our life. How do we know that? Because listen, have you ever been in a situation where something's going wrong and your friend looks at you and says, what's the worst that could happen? There's always a really easy answer to that question. Death is the worst thing that could happen. You could die. Something really bad could happen and your life could cease to exist. But what the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has given Paul and what it gives us is this understanding that even in those moments of suffering, there's great purpose for it. Not just here and now, but also stretching in to eternity. So Paul starts this little section. He says, listen, I have great joy built up in my life because of the suffering that I'm experiencing for the church. He has this big vision, this sort of 30,000 foot picture of what is going on in the church around him. And he has this big picture because what he believes is that what Jesus has done for all of humanity is so spectacular that it's actually worth suffering for. I told you there's gonna be some like shifts in this talk. Here's where it shifts a little bit again, verse 25. He says, I have become its servant, it being the, the gospel, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. What he's saying is I, I've become a, a servant to this, I've given my life to this because I wanna give you the full picture of who God is and what he has done through the person of Jesus. But then he says this, he says, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. And if you're a normal human, you read that and you go, okay, so you wanna give us the full picture. That's great. How many of you have been coming to church for a long time and you're like, I'd like to see the full picture, God. I wanna see what's going on. Paul says, I'm gonna give you the full picture. And yet it's a mystery. What are you supposed to do with that? I'm gonna give you the full picture and yet there's a mystery attached to it. Paul's doing something very clever here. The church, the people that Paul is sending this letter to, there's a church in the city of Colossae. And what we know about what happened in this time that Paul's writing this letter is there was a long-standing sort of set of beliefs in church history, they call it a heresy, which simply means a set of beliefs that has gotten sideways. It's not exactly the right way to think about something. There's this heresy that has begun to run rampant all through this church. 
And the heresy, historians can't quite put their finger on it, but they know that it involved three different things. It involved this belief and devotion to Jesus, but it had attached to it this idea that, A, you needed to believe in Jesus and follow all the rules and laws of the Old Testament. So you needed to believe in Jesus and maintain all of the ritualistic uh, performances, practices, all those things. It wasn't just that. It was believe in Jesus, maintain all of those practices, and you also needed to have this sort of belief that anything in the material world, so you feel your shirt, the chair you're sitting on, the shoes you have on, anything in the material world is inherently evil. Okay, so it's this belief that Jesus is good and he's right and he's the savior of the world, but you gotta have all these practices. You gotta believe that anything in the material world is evil. And then there's this third part, which is really fascinating. There was also this belief floating around that to know God fully was so mysterious and so bizarre that only the smartest among you knew what to do. And so the way that they presented it was there were like these secret handshakes, these secret words, these secret prayers that you could pray, and those were the ways that you could come to know God completely. Can you imagine being around one of those people who thinks they have all the answers to those things? Listen, I don't know if you yourself have ever been around a group of friends where you sort of step into the space and you realize that they all know something you don't know. They've been like laughing and giggling about it, and you're like, guys, what's going on? I remember when I was uh, in high school, I dated this girl. Um, should I use her name? I'll use her name. Her name was Sarah. I dated this girl named Sarah. It's a bit of an embarrassing story for her, but nonetheless. I was dating this girl named Sarah. And one day we're hanging out at her house and she tells me she has made peanut butter chocolate chip cookies. And listen, I'm gonna be honest with you. I don't love peanut butter. You guys can stone me later. Hold on, hold on. I'm interested. My goodness, chill out. I'm interested among this next generation. How many of you love peanut butter? How many of you are like, no, peanut butter's trash? That's a fair amount of people. Y'all are my people. Listen, so I don't love peanut butter. So I'm not exactly like super excited to eat these cookies in the first place, but I'm, I like a good cookie. So if you bring me a good cookie and it looks good, I'm gonna eat it. So she says, hey, I've made these peanut butter chocolate chip cookies. You have to try them. She goes into the kitchen. She, I can hear her like getting them off of the cookie tray and making the noise and everything. She comes out with this plate and y'all, they look like trash. <laughs> I'm talking like burnt on the edges. They look like they have been tanning in Florida for four, far too long. They look terrible. She hands me a plate with a cookie on it and I stare at it for a minute. And I go... Oh man, I should have told you, I'm super allergic to peanut butter. And she goes, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I go, no, listen, it's cool. Like it's a really bad allergy. So like if those things even get near me, I might die. So like you got to keep those far away from me. Like I can't, I'm, I'm sorry, I just can't eat it. She goes, okay. She's like, man, duly noted. Listen, we didn't date that long. So, <laughs> like six months later though, I find myself at like, a, it was at the lunch table in, high, in, in school and, and we're still like in the same friend group sort of. Some of you guys know how this works. You date somebody and then you're like still friends or whatever. 
you pretend to be. And uh, meanwhile, they hate you. You don't like them. It's fine. <laughs> We're like at the same lunch table, right? Somebody else that day shows up. This is six months later, way removed from it. Somebody else shows up at that lunch table with peanut butter chocolate chip cookies. And y'all, these cookies looked bomb. If I could marry a cookie, I would have married this cookie. That's not, I shouldn't have said, that's weird. Um, And they, and, and I'm like walking towards this table and someone yells, Rory, do you want a peanut butter chocolate chip cookie? And I hear Sarah go, no! He can't have peanut butter. She's like making a whole scene. The whole cafeteria is like staring at this right now. And I don't love getting a lot of attention, except when I'm on a stage, I guess. But she's making like a full scene. I finally sit down at the table. She like pulls the cookies to the far end of the table. She's She's like, I know you can't have these. I won't let them get near you. Now here's the problem. All of our friends at that table knew I had lied to her about being allergic to peanut butter. So as she's acting a fool, they are laughing like tears in shambles. And she has this moment where she realizes everyone knows something that I don't know. Aw, is right. Listen, it's not my fault. I, if y'all would have, listen, listen. If y'all would have seen the first batch of cookies you'd have lied to. Some of you boys would have broke up with her right then and left. I know how this works. So she realizes something is up. She says out loud, Rory, I'm trying to keep these cookies down here. You can't have these cookies. My friend Hannah looks down at her. And girls, you know how you guys can get like really sassy with one another. She looks down at Sarah and goes, Sarah, he's not allergic to peanut butter. Your cookies just suck. And listen. I was like, she's right. And then I ate a cookie. Guys, listen, you know that feeling though. You've been in those situations where all of a sudden you realize people around you know something that you don't know. You're unaware of what's going on, but they know something that you don't know. This is the idea of the gospel that's being presented to the church that Paul is writing to. That there are some really smart people, some really special people, some really like called people. You know, the best of, the smartest ones, the most clever ones. They know how to interact with God, but... But the normal people, the regular ones, they're actually not in on this secret at all. And you know why this is problematic? It's problematic because of what Paul says next. Verse 27, he says to them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. So he's told us it's a mystery, but I'm gonna give you what the mystery is. It's not this hidden secret thing. What does he say? He says the glorious riches of this mystery, which is who? Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Paul says this mystery, the way you guys have been told that Jesus is like hidden from you and all this, it's not. The mystery is that Jesus himself is the hope of glory. Jesus, and here's the trick, 
just Jesus. Just Jesus. He says there's this mystery. The mystery, though, is unveiled. It's just Jesus. I love this quote about what a mystery is. A a great theologian is named Stanley Hauerwas. He says this. He says, mystery does not name a puzzle that cannot be solved. Rather, mystery names that which we know, but the more we know, the more we are forced to rethink everything we think we know. You want me to read it again? I'll read it again. He says, mystery does not name a puzzle that cannot be solved. In other words, Jesus is not hiding from you. Rather, mystery names that which we know, but the more we know, the more we are forced to rethink everything that we think we know. This is what Paul is saying. This is who Jesus is. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the hope of the future goodness of God. It's Jesus and nothing else. But the problem for the church that Paul is writing to is what they've been convinced is that the gospel is Jesus plus fill in the blank. It's Jesus, Jesus is good, but there's something that's gotta be added to it. Can I tell you guys something? If you ever find yourself in churches, in student ministries, in environments where someone looks at you and says, hey, the good news of Jesus is Jesus plus something, get up and run as fast as you can. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that it is Jesus and Jesus alone. That is the thing that brings you faith. That is the thing that supplies hope into your life. That is the thing that allows you to see the future goodness of God. It is not Jesus plus anything else. But we live in a world that tries to add things on quite frequently. I can remember, how many of you in here drive cars? How many of you have your own car? Just a few of you, yeah. Well, the adults, obviously. Maybe. I remember my very first car was a, a 1999 green Toyota Camry. We called it the Green Bean. Yeah, man, I, I looked like such a loser in that car. I, I had the Green Bean, and then I drove it until it broke down, and then I got this 2001 all-black Volvo S70. I felt so cool. Man, I was, I was living it up. And then that car broke down. And then my wife and I, we got married and we had this moment where we've been married a couple years and we go, man, we need to get a new car. We're at this base, her car from growing up in high school and college has broke down and my car is now broke down. We need to get a new car. So we decided we're gonna go buy a brand new car. We did not have the money for it. It was a bad financial decision, but nonetheless, we go to buy this new car. And, and, and you guys don't know this, but when you go to buy a new car, there's this like, long sort of dance that you're doing with the car dealership. They're like showing you cars and, and you're looking at them and you have this moment where finally you test drive one, you love it and you go, that, that's the car that I want. And I remember we picked it out and they go, oh man, this is so good. This is the car that you guys want. That's great. We're gonna get the contract drawn up and then you guys are gonna sit down with one of our financial people and you're gonna sign all these papers. And all of a sudden they show up with this massive stack of papers. And as we start signing them, there are these moments where they sort of stop you and they go, now, could I interest you in 12 months of free satellite radio? And I'm like, bro, I'm here to buy a car. I don't, I can't afford this. I, what, I can't afford more free radio. That sounds terrible. So I just, no, I can't. I don't want that. 
We'd sign a couple more papers. They'd slide back in and be like, could we interest you in an extended warranty on your car in case it breaks down? And when you're buying a new car, you have this thought of, if this thing's gonna break down, I'm not sure I want it. Can I have a different car completely? So you, you want the extended warranty? No, guys, I'm good. We, we'd, start, we'd be signing more papers, and all of a sudden they'd come back and be like, we just found one of these cars on the lot with leather seats in it instead of the ones that you have. I'm like, is it gonna cost more? And they're like, well, yeah. And I'm like, I don't want it. What are you bringing me more stuff for? As we kept going through this process, I've already said yes to this car. They just keep adding and bringing more and more things into it. They go, do you want this? No, I don't want that. Do you want four-wheel drive? I lived in Texas at the time. We don't ever get snow. There's no reason for four-wheel drive. Do you want a sunroof? It's 110 here. I don't need a sunroof. Do you want an extra trunk? I don't even know how that works. Like, they just kept trying to add stuff in. I'd already made the decision. I knew what I was here for. I picked it out. We were ready to sign on the line. All they kept doing was trying to introduce more things into it. And you know what it got, what we eventually found ourselves? My wife was so anxious and nervous. She was like, maybe we should say yes to all these things because then we know we've got all of it. And I'm like, we should say no to all of these things. We don't need any of this stuff. It created a level of anxiety and fear and worry. Am I missing something? Are we not going to have enough? Are we going to have too much? This is the gospel that's being presented to the church in Colossians. Jesus is good, but it's Jesus plus something else. Can I tell you guys something tonight? The gospel that Paul is talking about is not Jesus plus anything else. It's not have faith in Jesus plus make sure to get everything right. It's not have faith in Jesus and know all the right prayers to pray. It's not have faith in Jesus and make sure that you know the like special worship dance moves. It's not have faith in Jesus and anything. What Paul is saying is that the hope of glory is Jesus and Jesus himself. That's it. Here's the truth, guys. So often we stand up here, we make the gospel way too complicated. The gospel is simply Jesus has given his life for you. Would you trust him with it? It's not Jesus plus anything else. You want the hope, the glory of God to show up in your life. It's to simply trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. So you know what that means for some of you? It's not Jesus plus you getting straight A's to have a good life. It's not Jesus plus people pleasing all the time. It's not the way to it. It's not Jesus plus my friends are really good at everything and they're really kind to me. Because what Paul presents is that even in your suffering, Jesus can be enough. He says it's not Jesus plus anything else. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. This is the gift of the gospel. But what I want you guys to catch is the way that Paul phrases this. Because Paul actually suggests that it isn't just Jesus. Watch what he does. Coming back to this verse, it's verse 27. He says, to them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ, where? Say it again. The glorious riches of this mystery is Christ in you the hope of glory. Do you get the picture that's being painted? What Paul is saying, it's not that it's just Jesus and nothing else. It's that it's just Jesus 
who is living and residing in you. This is what it means when we say you have been filled with the spirit of God, is that Jesus has now taken up the very residence in your life. He's there, he's present. This would have been a mind-blowing idea for the readers of this letter. Because for so many of the Jewish people, what they had been taught about God was that God resided in this one spot and it was called a temple. He was in the temple. So if you wanted to go meet with God, you had to go to the temple. If you wanted to bring sacrifices so that your sins would be forgiven, you would go to the temple. If you wanted to meet with the people of God, you would go to the temple. This is where God lived. This is where he dwelled. This is where he resided. And yet what Paul is asserting is that something's actually changed. That, that God is not sort of holed up in this temple somewhere far off in distance. He, he's not a, uh, unaware of the pain of your life. He's not unaware of, of the things that are going on around you. He's actually very aware because he's not hidden off in this temple. In fact, what Jesus says is that the spirit will come and dwell in and among believers. I even think about the words that Paul uses in a letter to the Corinthians, a, a different church. But he says this to them. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Think about what Paul is saying. The hope of glory is that Christ, the spirit of Jesus himself, is indwelling in your very body. This, my friends, is the hope of glory. The hope that even through suffering, things will be okay. The hope that you have is that Jesus is not like distant from you, He's right there with you. The hope of glory of seeing the coming goodness of God in your life is not that you've got to kind of wait for God to show up. It's that God has been showing up the entire time because Christ is in you. This is the gospel that he presents. The band can make their way back up to the stage and I want to sort of give you guys just a couple of things that I think this means for you tonight. The first thing is this is that if the hope of glory is Jesus himself, you don't need to add anything to that gospel. Some of you have felt that temptation though. Some of you have felt the temptation that Jesus is good, but he's not making your life good enough. So the way that you've chosen to live out your faith, the way you've chosen to sort of walk with Jesus is like, Jesus, you're good, but I also need to be really popular with people. Jesus, you're good, but I need a boy or a girl to show me affection to know that I have value. Jesus, you're good, but I'm not sure that I trust you with my anxiety and depression and my fear and my stress. Jesus, you're good, but I don't know if you're good enough. Listen, some of you would maybe not say that's what you think, but a lot of us live like that's what we think. And I'm not here to make you feel bad or embarrassed or anything like that. What I wanna challenge you with is to simply figure out if that's how you've been thinking about Jesus. And can I give you an open invitation tonight that you can let all of those other things go and you can just hold on to Jesus. You can just keep hold of him. The second implication for you guys, if what Paul is saying is true, that the hope of glory is not just Jesus out there, it's Jesus in you, then what that means for some of you, when you go through really difficult moments in life, you can trust that you are not alone. 
that the God of the universe has not distanced himself from you, but he has drawn closer to you. The very spirit of Jesus is walking with you. When you wrestle with being lonely in a crowded room, Jesus is with you. When you wrestle with the tension that your parents have applied of like getting into the the best colleges or getting the perfect grades and and you feel like nobody really sees you because you don't care that much, man, Jesus is with you. Christ is in you. You're not walking around sort of this human and God's hoping you get things right. He's with you. For some of you, if you begin to get that, the places of pain, the places of difficulty, the places of joy even in your life will start to feel feel different. I wanna invite you to stand as we get ready to sing here in just a moment. And I simply wanna take a moment to pray over you. Because to embrace Jesus and Jesus alone, sometimes you don't have the words for what you need. To, To trust that Jesus being with you and just Jesus being with you is good enough, sometimes you don't know how to articulate that. So simply what I wanna do as we get ready to step back into worship, you guys can press in, you can do whatever you want. I simply wanna pray over you and then we're gonna sing. Sound good? God, I thank you for this group of students who have gathered here tonight, who have gathered looking for you, looking for a way to live their life, looking for a way to, to stay close to the God who created them and who has loved them. God, I pray for the person, the student in here tonight, who the way they've walked through the gospel is that it's Jesus plus something else. Jesus is fine, but he's not enough. Spirit, what I ask is that you would break that off of us tonight. That you would shake those things off that have convinced us that Jesus alone is not good enough that we've been told that Jesus is fine, but there's all these other things we need to do to get it right. Jesus, that's not who you are. We are saved by faith in you and you alone. So would you break that off of us tonight? I also pray over the people who have been walking through seasons of difficulty, stress, anxiety, depression, loneliness, whatever it may be, just the flat out waves of life. And what they have wondered is if God even sees them. What they have wondered is, does God even care? We know, God, that you care because you have left your spirit with us. That the very spirit of Jesus now resides in us and now empowers us and now gives us strength to keep walking no matter what suffering may come our way. We know that this is true. We know when we find ourselves in lonely, dark places that you are with us. When we find ourselves in moments of celebration and joy, we're not celebrating alone. You are with us. The very spirit of Jesus has rested inside of us. So what we ask tonight is that you would help us trust those things. Not help us believe them as these random concepts of faith, but would you help us trust in those things, believing that they are good and true. Holy Spirit, would you come in these, very, in these next few moments? Would you meet us in this space? We ask all of this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen.
Let's worship.